<clears throat> so in college, I lived for uh, about a year, year and a half with this guy named Nate. He's a good friend of mine. And I want to tell you a little bit about Nate. So first off, he was like probably about the smartest guy I ever met. Uh, we were about the same age, uh, 20, 21, something like that. I was just kind of getting going with my bachelor's degree, and he was working on his doctorates already to the point of starting to write his dissertation. And I tell you, I, I asked him time and time again, what is it that you do? What are you reading and studying? And he would explain it, and I'd ask questions, and at the end of it, no idea. Something to do with computers, I guess. So he was very smart but he was very quiet. Some people thought that he was shy, like an introvert, um, but he was not an introvert. Anytime you invited him to do anything, he never turned down an offer. Village Inn or IHOP at three o'clock in the morning, I'm game. Let's walk up that mountain, okay, let's do it. He was always game for whatever we had uh, going on. And when he was with us, um, he, he wouldn't talk much though. He just liked being with us. So everyone thought he was an introvert, but he wasn't. He wasn't shy, he wasn't quiet. He just had a hard time talking to people and making friends. He wasn't comfortable with most people, um, but he was comfortable talking to me. Uh, we were really good friends. He was kind and he was one of the most generous people I ever met. But also I got to see a side of Nate that not many people ever got to see. I got to see Nate pray. Let me read a verse real quick by J.I. Packer, or not a verse, but a quote. J.I. Packer writes, I believe that prayer is the measure of the man, spiritually, in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. I had seen Nate pray. At 20-something years old, I had never seen anyone pray the way he did. And so here's a metaphor for you. Um, I'm gonna give you a little image of what my prayers were like. So, I'm a young man, I'm in this stately house, a mansion or a castle or something, and I'm living with a, a you know, super powerful, uh, prominent father. And I would go to the door of you know, my father's study, big, tall, wooden double doors, and um, you know, very imposing, and I'd, I'd stand there, you know, I wanted to talk to him, thinking, what am I gonna say, and I'd, you know, kind of go to knock on the door and I'd, I'd hesitate and I'd end up picking out a little notepad, you know, flipping and writing a little, a little prayer, little comment, sliding it under his door and then like a real quick knock before I, before I ran out. That's how I prayed. The first time I prayed with Nate, it went like this. So I was standing there, you know, mahogany doors. I got my notepad out and Nate, he just walks right by, right into the room. A whole different Nate walked into that room, walked into that study. He wasn't shy, he wasn't timid, he wasn't bashful. And I stood outside of the study kind of listening in to what he was doing, what he was saying. I looked at the room and it was exactly like you'd imagine it, but more, you know, prominent and noble and kingly. You had couches and chairs and those curtains. You know, the study that you imagine a king having, there was that that desk. We all know that huge desk. But the king wasn't sitting behind the desk. The king was sitting there with Nate 
on the couch, laughing at some story about Nate's day, you know, looking over the notes that Nate has taken from uh, while he was working on his dissertation, and the king would put his hand on Nate's shoulder as Nate told him of some sadness or some sorrow that he had faced that day. The king never took his eyes off of Nate, and Nate never took his eyes off the king. The king was hanging on Nate's words, and Nate was hanging on the king's words. And Nate just went on and on, talking about whatever came to his mind, anything and everything. And after about an hour or so, Nate looked up at me, and the king looked up at me, and Nate says, what are you still doing out there? Come on in. What a man, what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is, and no more. Robert Murray wrote, I had seen Nate talk with the king, and they were close. He talked to God the same way Elias and Leela talked to me, with delight, without any reservation, about anything, all the time. Uh, Nate prayed like I'd never seen anyone pray. So D.A. Carson, in uh, the, the book that we've been recommending uh, you guys read about the, the, Paul, the um, prayers of the Apostle Paul, he writes that in the Western world, we urgently need this advice. For many of us in our praying are like nasty little boys that ring the doorbell and run away before anyone answers. Pray until you've prayed. Nate, he might not have been comfortable talking to people, but he was comfortable talking to God. And from then on, I prayed regularly with Nate. Watching him helped me learn how to pray until I've prayed. No more slipping notes under the doors of the study. I started walking into the room and sitting down on the couch. So we're doing this series on the, the prayers of the Apostle Paul to watch how Paul prayed, how Paul talked to the king, and about what he talked about. So we're watching Paul pray so that we can learn to pray like Paul prayed. This morning we're in 2 Thessalonians 2. In verse 16. So if you want to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 2. Verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I have three questions I want to cover here this morning. First, to whom did Paul pray? Second, for whom does Paul pray? And third, what does he pray for? So the first question, to whom does Paul pray? So Paul prays to Jesus and to God. So it says in the, the first part of our verse, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So he prays to them both because Jesus, the God, the God the Son, and God the Father are on the same plane. Jesus is just as much God as the Father is. As the Father is. Uh, Paul does this a lot in his letters. He puts Jesus and God together side by side. He does it 12 times, I think. Eight of those times, the order is God the Father first, followed by Jesus. But here, it's Jesus first, 
followed by God the Father. So is this on purpose? It might be. So many scholars attribute the description that follows that part that says, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. Many scholars uh, ascribe that to both God and Jesus, which you know, may in fact be true. I mean, we know that from the whole of scripture, it's, it certainly is true. Both Jesus and God, they both love us. They both give us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. But some scholars think that in this specific verse, Paul might be attributing that truth here specifically to God the Father because of some grammatical way that it's written. So how important is this nuance? I'm not so sure, but it seems to be there. So I'm going I'm to spend a little time tugging on that thread. Paul prays to a God, a Father, who loves us. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he sa- it says, and God our Father who loved us. So let's focus on that. God loves us and chose us to be saved. It says in 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, verse 13, just a, a few verses earlier than our verse. That is, he elected us, he chose us to be saved. I'm noting this, this faithful love in uh, sovereign election because Paul notes it right before he says that God loves us. And uh, I'll be referring to a number of verses in Thessalonians. We're not going to share them up on the screen, so maybe just keep your Bibles open. Um, but let's read this verse in chapter 2, verse 13 real quick. Paul writes, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. So we are beloved by the Lord because God chose to save us. Before Adam and Eve ate the fruit, before Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in the garden, before Adam and Eve, before the birds and the fish and the trees and the oceans and the heavens and the light, there in the beginning when it was the Spirit hovering over the waters, God the Father elected us. He elected us. He chose us to believe. There in the beginning, he chose you to believe. He chose you. When God told Abraham to number the stars of the sky, you were one of those stars. And when God put a rainbow in the sky and made a covenant to Noah about Noah's offspring, you are one of those offspring. And when God was talking to the people of Israel there on Mount Sinai, about a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, you are one of those priests. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sins because God sent him to do it. Not the concept of sin, your sins. That's what he died for on the cross. He didn't wait until you were born to choose you. God chose you beyond the keep of time. Before time was measured, God chose to send his son to die for you, to die for me, to die for the Thessalonians. It says in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us because Christ died for us. Jesus loves us. I'm not saying that that's not true. Um, but, the fa- but God the Father sent Jesus, and he sent him to show that he loves us. So brothers and sisters, the Father to whom we pray is not some wrathful king behind some big, closed, double mahogany doors in his study. Not to us who believe, not to us who are, us who are in Christ, he's not. 
Let me say it this way. The Father doesn't love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because the Father loves us. And Jesus reminds us of this. When Jesus was with the apostles in the upper room, this is in, in John, right before Jesus was gonna go to the cross, uh, when it start, started to dawn on the apostles that Jesus was gonna die, when Jesus saw the fear and the tear and the sorrow in their eyes, do you know what Jesus said to them? He said, in that day, when I die, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. For the Father himself loves you. So John Owen wrote about this verse, and I'm gonna paraphrase it. Um, he tells it like this. So Jesus is telling the apostles, don't ask for me to procure the Father's love for you. I'm not a go-between. You pray to him in my name, sure. You ask him for things in my name, yes. But there is no need for me to ask on your behalf. He, the Father himself, he loves you. You're troubled about whether or not he loves you? Well, you know what? Your unkindness in not believing his love, that troubles him. We don't need to stand out in the hall outside the doors of the study while Jesus goes in and talks to, talks to God on our behalf. That's not only wrong, it's unkind. The Father loves you. The Father wants you in the room. He wants to hear your voice. He wants to put his hand on your shoulder. Paul prays to a God who comforts and assures us. So this is in that part of the verse where it says that um, God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So I want to talk a little bit about the Thessalonians. You've heard of Alexander the Great. He was the greatest uh, emperor. He was, well, he was the emperor of the greatest empire the world has ever known. This was back about 400 years before Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians. Well, the Thessalonians are sons and daughters of Alexander the Great. That's who these people are, the Macedonians. And about 150 years after Alexander the Great died, Rome conquered Macedonia. And from that day to the day that this letter was written, Macedonia was beholden to Rome. So every once in a while, a handful of times, there was like an uprising, and Rome would just crush them, crush them economically, crush them politically, crush them socially. So at this point, the Thessalonians, they were not game for messing around with Rome. They were beholden politically, socially, economically, and, and theologically. So remember back when we, when we studied Mark, and we talked about the imperial ruler cult of Rome? So... Um, the imperial ruler cult, uh, cult honored Caesar, its, its emperor at that, point, at that point. There's inscriptions on these you know, ancient things that say, uh, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the world of the good news. And Mark and his gospel in the very first verse challenged that. The good news for the world began with Jesus Christ, the true son of God. We remember that? It was probably a year ago at this point, but... Well, the Israelites really weren't on board with all of that, but the Thessalonians, they were. They embraced Rome, and their loyalty to Rome and the imperial cult pervaded all aspects of their lives, and they prospered because of it. Economically and politically, they, they really reaped the benefits of bowing down to Caesar, 
This was a rich society. So when we read in Acts that Chris read for us, which was our scripture this morning, we can understand why the Thessalonians cracked down immediately and brutally on Christianity. It wasn't just about their religious allegiance being threatened. It was their political loyalties. It was their livelihood as a society. Rome would crush them again as they had in the past if they started talking about some other king, some other Lord, Jesus Christ. They wanted nothing to do with Christianity. So the Thessalonian, uh, the Thessalonian church was viciously persecuted and they suffered and they died. So Paul starts his prayer underscoring for them that God has given them eternal comfort and good hope. He reminds them whose shoulder it is that's on, or whose hand it is that's on their shoulder as they sit on the couch in the study sharing their sorrow and pain. It's the hand of a father that gives good hope high hope, the highest hope. So what is this high hope? What is this eternal comfort? All throughout the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, especially in verses 5 through 12, Paul says that those who are hurting you, those who are persecuting you and afflicting you, God will repay them. And in the end, Jesus will be glorified. But what's more is you will be glorified in him. So let's take a look and read it. So in chapter one, verse five, it says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God will repay and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. And then if you go down to verse 11, this is Paul's first prayer of this book. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And here it is. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Paul's first prayer, he prays that Jesus would be glorified in them and that they would be glorified in him. So to be glorified, it's a word that we use often here in church. Um, what does it mean? Glory is kind of a weird word. We might think of the cheers of, uh, for a, a high school quarterback on um, homecoming when he just won the game. Praise and adulation, like pats on the back. Uh, that feels good, sure, but is that, is that what you think Paul's talking about here? I think it kind of is. It's talking about the experience that we're gonna have when we step into the next world and when God, the Father, pats us on the back and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the sort of thing that Paul's talking about here, both when he refers to glory in his first prayer and when he talks about the eternal comfort and good hope in his second prayer. Paul is talking about the glory that we're gonna receive when we're welcomed into the eternal kingdom by the eternal God. But the Thessalonians, they didn't live in that sort of a world, the society of uh, the Thessalonians. So this guy named Theognis, he was an ancient Greek poet, 
the uh, Thessalonians likely read his stuff and stuff like it. This is how they talked about a future hope that awaited. So he writes, best of all for mortals is never to have been born. And for those who have been born to die as soon as possible. So the hope of those persecuting the Thessalonian church, that hope was vague and uncertain at best. When suffering came, it came without any purpose. Suffering just meant suffering. And the black nothingness of death was the best thing that you could hope for. But not so for the Thessalonian church. The hope found in the God to whom Paul prayed, it was eternal and certain, and it transcended the grave. The Thessalonians had hope in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, and in the face of death. It is firm. It's rooted deep in the grace of Christ Jesus. This prayer is rooted in grace. You see the word grace there? Grace, our sins, the, the, the feeling of dread that we have about not having lived up to the standards of ourselves nor anywhere close to the standards of God, that dread, that dread is done away with. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We have no fear of sin and no fear of death. Their hope was fixed. Our hope is fixed. Their life, their eternal life secure. So let's bring this back from Paul's day to our day. Cormac McCarthy, you guys might know this guy. He's a, a novelist. Though there's a lot of movies also that they made about his books. Um, he wrote this in his latest novel. Here's a story, he writes. The last of all men who stands alone in the universe while it darkens about him, who sorrows all things with a single sorrow out of the pitiable and exhausted remnants of what was once his soul, he'll find nothing from which to craft the least thing godlike and to guide him in these last of days. That's the hope of our age, guys. Cormac McCarthy, he died three weeks ago. We live in a day and age where the idea of an afterlife is scoffed at. There is no door through which we're going to walk, we're told. We'll fade out with a whimper, not even that. We'll die with the sun, and the universe won't skip a beat. That's what we're told. No, I say, no, we say. That's not how it ends for us. In fact, there is no ending to our story. We'll step through Jordan's gate to song and dance. There is a door, and in the end, his redeem will walk through that threshold. We will be welcomed in as good and faithful servants with the cross behind us. And so for the Thessalonians, for the cross behind them and glory ahead, the Thessalonian church could stand secure in the comfort of high hope, the high hope of God, no matter what they faced. And we can too, because God has given us eternal encouragement and a high hope no matter what we face. You guys know the verse. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together, together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are glorified. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a high hope. So on to question number two. For whom does Paul pray? He prays for the Thessalonians. He doesn't pray for himself. So I hope we are all getting this from the three messages so far. Paul's prayers are prayers for others. That's what he prays for. Now, he does ask for prayers himself. A little bit later in this letter, he does just that. And in 2 Corinthians, we hear of him praying or pleading with God to take away the thorn in his side. Um, But by and large, Paul's prayers are intercessory prayers. He prays for other people. There's nothing wrong with praying for ourselves, but there is something wrong if that's the only person we pray for. And I want to say that there is something wrong if that's mainly who we pray for. This prayer is a prayer for others. So I told you the story about about Nate, how he helped me learn how to pray until I've prayed. I have another story about some guys who helped me learn how to pray for others. About four years ago, I had coffee with Pastor Chris, and he asked me what I uh, thought about maybe becoming an elder. We have this elder candidacy program, um, if you all don't know. Uh, Part of it includes this application that asks a number of questions, so we kind of talked about that. Um, But one thing I asked Chris is if I could attend one of the elder meetings, just to see what it was like. Now, I know and I knew then that the elders meeting is a a small part of being an elder. Um, There's a lot more to it, but I wanted to see what the meetings were like. So they invited me and I went. Now, we always start with a Bible study or a book. Right now, we're going through some some Psalms that uh, that Dwight uh, selected for us. So we spend about 20 to 30 minutes studying uh, the Bible or studying some book that we're reading. And then we pray. We pray for you. And on the agenda, we always allocate about an hour to prayer. And you know, Greg, who puts together the agenda, I don't think we have ever gotten through the prayer in an hour. (laughs) But there it is, every month, one hour for prayer. So here's the thing. Some things on the agenda, they get bumped. Some things we have to stick a pin in and pick it up later. Some things we just kind of have to hurry through and get done. But one thing that never gets bumped, one thing that never gets rushed, is the prayer. Now, before I was an elder, when I was invited to that first meeting, I didn't know what to expect. We got to that time of prayer, and everyone pulled out their printout of members and regular attenders at Bethel. And they picked up where they left off, and they started to pray. So I I want you to listen to this quote real quick from D.A. Carson before I finish this story. He writes, Where is our delight in praying? Where is our sense that we are meeting with the living God? 
that we are undertaking work that he has assigned, that we are interceding, that we are asking on behalf of others with a genuine unction before the throne of grace. When was the last time we came away from a period of intercession, feeling that, like Jacob or Moses, we had prevailed with God? I watch these men, our elders. They have a sense that they're meeting with the living God. They have a sense that they're undertaking God's work, that God has assigned to them. These men, they intercede for us with genuine unction before the throne of grace. Like Jacob and Moses, these men prevail with God. In that first meeting, all I really remember was the prayer. Deep in thought, alert and circumspect, they prayed together. They prayed scripture like prayer, like Paul prayed. I felt the spirit moving, almost like we were lifted up to the throne room of heaven itself. And I don't mean to sound mystical, um, but I don't know how else to describe it. They took a handful of our specific requests and they surrounded them with kingdom-focused intercessions and they made their case before the God of creation for the good of his kingdom. And I felt that God was there with us. And after it was over, I looked at Chris and I said something stupid or juvenile like, wow, that was really cool and awesome. And Chris looked at me and he said, that's the job. And it was more than a year later before I finally finished the application to be an elder. Um, there were a handful of things that I had to think through and, and wrestle with. And one of those was having watched these men pray, I needed to acknowledge to myself that I didn't pray for others often and I didn't do it well. And as Chris says, that's the job. But it's not just the job of our elders. It's all of our jobs. My prayer life needed to shift from being primarily inward focused to outward. It needed to become more kingdom focused. And I don't share this story to put our elders on a pedestal. I really don't. I'm sure they're squirming in their seats and they feel uncomfortable as I told this story. Um, but I share it because I learn how to pray by praying with them. And Paul shares his prayer with the Thessalonians partly so that they could emulate him. He says this in Philippians. Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So I don't copy how Nate prays. I don't copy how our elders pray. We all have our own style. We're different people. We have different ways of talking to each other. We have different ways of talking to God, but we should all strive to bring our prayer life more and more in line with how the Bible teaches us to pray, how the Bible teaches us to pray for others. And praying with men and women who pray like that, that helps us to pray like that. That's why we're doing this series, to learn how to pray for others, for each other better. So let's continue learning from Paul. For what does Paul pray? Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So he prays that God would comfort them. With what, we ask? Well, all of the things we just talked about. Jesus' divinity, for one, that the man that walked the earth experienced life and death, death on a cross, 
that that Jesus, the God-man, as it says in Hebrews, he had to be made like his brothers, be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That Jesus, that God-man, died for our sins on the cross and that he himself suffered when he was tempted so that he's able to help us as we're tempted, but he lived a sinful, sinless life. As it, says, as it also says in Hebrews, we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who is able to sympathize. But this man is also God. We have a God who is able to sympathize. So what other things should comfort the Thessalonians? That the Father loves him. As it says just two verses earlier, in verse 13, they are beloved by the Lord because God chose them as the first fruits to be saved. That their salvation, their glorification is fixed and secure. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. That all this is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We all know Ephesians 2 where it says that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even as we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If these things are true, if the Bible's true, no matter what they faced, no matter what we face today or tomorrow, we face it with the cross behind us and the kingdom ahead of us. No matter the affliction, we will be the better for it as we cross that threshold and are finally and eternally welcomed home. If you've placed your trust in Jesus, if you've confessed your sin and trusted that the work that Jesus did on the cross saves you from the consequences of your sin that needed to be paid for, that it was paid for, and if you've repented and if you believe, then I pray that you find comfort. Find comfort in these words. If you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, friends, these truths are yours for the taking. They are yours. You just have to pick them up and believe. Paul prays that God would comfort their hearts. So their hearts. Says, now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, and a little bit farther down, comfort your hearts. So the heart is the center of all human existence. Proverbs 4.23 tells us to keep our hearts with vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. If there is good in our hearts, there is good at the source. It's like headwaters. It flows throughout. If there is bad in our hearts, well, the same holds. Poison at the source poisons it all. In preparation for the sermon, I was talking with Pastor Chris, and he explained it like this. He said the heart is kind of like the command center. It's where decisions get made. So, have you guys seen the movie Inside Out? I think you probably have. All right, I'll tell you about it. So, it's about this little girl whose family moved to a new city and she's wrestling with the change of moving to a new city and leaving her friends and her hockey team. But the film is really about, um, uh, the, the, but the film is uh, really about how um, these five characters that operate within her heart. So you have joy, and you have sorrow and fear and anger and disgust. And these five people, these five little characters, are up in this tower deep in the girl's heart. 
They're at the command center. They have this huge control panel and the five of them kind of operate it. They argue about how to operate it, but they're operating it. And their goal is to create memories, these things that are called core memories, memories that serve as, as the foundation for who this little girl is, what she's like. Well, as the movie goes, joy and sorrow, they get separated from the command center. And so you just have fear and anger and disgust calling the shots and things fall apart. And the whole movie is about joy and sorrow trying to make their way back to the command center. What Paul is praying here is that, is that God would put these truths all of the truths that are prefaced in this prayer, that he would put them into the Thess Thessalonians' command centers, into their hearts, into our hearts, that from the springs of our heart, the headwater would flow these sweet, comforting truths, that we are loved with a love unimaginable by a God unmeasurable and promised a future with glory inconceivable. Paul prays that they would be established in the work of the kingdom. As it says there, established them in every good work and word. So it's helpful to think about this verse in light of Paul's first prayer in the letter. So go back to chapter one, verse 11. I'll just read this real quick. Paul says that he always prays for them that God may make them worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So remember, the Thessalonian church was a persecuted church. They lived in a dangerous place for Christians. Their lives could be and were upended at any moment. Their days weren't easy. Their days weren't safe. But Paul doesn't pray for safety. He doesn't pray that their lives would get easier or more comfortable. He didn't pray for financial security or protection of their freedom or protection of their lives. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for these things. In fact, Paul sometimes prays for these things. But here, in our verse, he doesn't. And most of the time, that's not what he prays for when he prays for suffering, afflicted, and persecuted Christians. Instead, Paul prays that God would comfort them and establish them for good work to do and to say good things for kingdom work. Paul prays that in their heart, in their control center, the desire and the opportunity to participate in the calling to make disciples of all nations would permeate their thoughts. So many of us, our, our work lives look different than each other's. We're not all paid for ministry. Uh, for the ministry work that we do. We're out in the workforce and we're selling and building and organizing things, which is all good work. And, and vocation is a calling. However, while our vocational callings are different, we all share this calling. This was Paul's calling that he wrote in, in, uh, in Acts to finish our course and the ministry that we received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We all share that calling. Now, we're not a persecuted church here in Wilmington. Not really at all. Not like the Thessalonian church. Not like many churches in ages past or even present day across the world. And that may change. But even if it does, even if it does change, how do you think Paul would pray for us? 
would he pray that our affliction would pass? Or would he pray like he does here? That each of us would be worthy of Jesus' calling to testify to the gospel of grace. That he would fulfill every resolve for good that's in our heart. That our hearts would be established in every good work and word. That we would do and say things with the future kingdom at the headwaters of our hearts. I think we all know what Paul would pray. If we found ourselves no longer to, to meet here publicly, we were afraid of getting arrested, he would pray that we get back to work. So then, what do you think we should pray for each other in light of the relative safety and comfort that we experience? I want to close with a quote from Nick Ripkin's book, The Insanity of Obedience. He writes, I rode in a van for 18 hours across China. Waking up from a long sleep, I found myself in a compound surrounded by approximately 150 leaders of a house church movement. Before I could even introduce myself, the gathered group said to me, 40% of our group has already been in prison for three years. That means that 60% of our group has yet to go to prison. Will you teach us, Dr. Nick, how to prepare to go to prison? When Dr. Nick drove off from that town and he drove off from our co-heirs there in China, what prayer requests do you think they sent him with? Dr. Nick, pray that there is work for us to do there in prison and pray that we do it well. We should pray for each other's safety. We should pray for each other's health. We should pray for each other's financial security. But mostly, we should pray for each other prayers like this, that from the headwaters of our hearts would flow the longing to do kingdom-focused work. Pray this for me, brothers and sisters. Pray it for each other. Let's do it now. Lord Jesus, and God our Father, you love us and you give us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Please comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.